Okay, so we've set up a lot of what we need to know. Let's let's try to take it home. Let's try to take it to midnight or whatever expression would somehow seem appropriate. So what we know is that we know that there's a lot of things we don't know. <laughs> that there's a lot of suffolk that has led to a great divergence in practices in terms of trying to figure out nighttime. And a part of it is that Tosus, in a few places, a little bit in our Masechta, which is why we've taken that as an excuse to talk about it, on the top of Beis and Beis, but in greater length elsewhere, so for example, hopefully you saw Shabbos and Flamidalid, and elsewhere even greater length than that, takes up the fact that there is a contradiction in the view of Rabbi Huda. There is a machlokas in the fact that there are other views too, in terms of the length of Benesh Mashos. So we can accept the machlokas, but the stira is a bigger problem, in that the same opinion, the same balamimer, is given different opinions as to the length of Benesh Mashos. So Rabbi Huda is blamed for two opinions of wide divergence. And if we assume, which itself highly questionable, but let's take it for now, that a mill is 18 minutes. So according to the Gemara in Shabbos, Bein Hashmashos is three quarters of a mill. That would be 13 and a half minutes. And according to the Gemara in Psachim, Bein Hashmashos would be four mil. So that would be 72 minutes. So which is it? Yes, sir. I guess skipping a little bit ahead, but the Shulchan Aruch mentioned something about Three and a quarter. Is well, that... three and a quarter is the difference between. Oh, that's what he's referencing. Yeah. Okay. Right, so that's the. So, what do you do with that? So, there are two major ways to resolve it, and by saying two ways, we're oversimplifying because there's so leaving aside the Sefi Yireim, which is a notable third way, which we'll, we'll leave aside for now, but still oversimplifying, we can group them into two ways. So one way is the what's known as the Gaonim. And it is a somewhat coincidental grouping because it puts together two different groups called Gaonim for coincidental reasons meaning the Gaonim and the Vilnagon, which have the same last name for <laughs> coincidental reasons. The, the Gaonim being the school of leaders in the pre-Rishonim era. Nowadays, we use Gaon to refer to extraordinary Talmud Chachamim or anybody in modern usage. So, <laughs> kind of the different extremes of the spectrum. But it also refers to a tkufa in Jewish history, the heads of the academies in the pre-Rishonim era, some of whom were extraordinary leaders and some of whom were not as extraordinary. And Roshachter has many stories to illustrate that point, not for now. But there was a certain take on this issue that was prevalent in the Gaonic era. And it also happens to be the view of the Vilna Gaon. So he was known as a Vilnagon because he was a Gon in the classical sense, meaning a Chad Bidoro, or once in history kind of extraordinary 
Tamil Chacham. So he was the Gaon in that sense. So different usages of the word Gaon, they're all on the Gaonim side. So they, for now, just to say it in the simplest way, their position is that the Gemarim Sachem is not applicable to Halacha. So the four mil standard is simply not what we use. And the three quarters mil standard, that is Bain Hashemashos. The other team has been known colloquially as Rabbeinu Tam's view. But that is also kind of an oversimplification. And that disguises its real popularity because it's really not just Rabbeinu Tam, but it's the vast majority of the Rishonim, including the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah. So that's pretty hefty yachas. So, but to sketch out roughly that view, that view is that we have to factor in all of the positions. So basically there are three markers, which comes out to saying there are two shkias. And the first shkia is when the sun starts to sink. And the second is when it is completely submerged. But there's still some light that's visible beyond the horizon. So essentially what you have then is that according to Rebbeinu Tam, the 72-minute bracket, the beginning of that is the first Shkia, and Seisa Kochavim is the end of that. So we say there's four mil, it's from the beginning of, it's from Shkia, what we call Shkia, it's what he calls first Shkia, and Seisa Kochavim is 72 minutes after that. And Bein Hashmashos, really, for actual halachic Bein Hashmashos, according to him, is then what the Gemara in Shabbos calls Bein Hashmashos, the three-quarters mil definition. And that is the last three-quarters of a mil of that bracket. Now, if you think about what that means, it places things at a great divergence from each other. Because let's assume for a second a six to six day, which doesn't ever really happen, but it's the simplest math. So let's just assume that for a second. Okay, so let's assume a day in which what we call Shkia happens at six. So in a Gaonim world, Shkia will be at six, and Seisukhovim will be at six thirteen and a half. Okay? At in a Rabbeinu Tam world, Seisukhovim is at what time? Seven twelve. But 
actual Ben Hashmashos didn't start until 6.58 and a half. So what does that mean? That means, think about that. So according to the Gra, when was Tzais? 6.13 and a half, right? And according to Rabbeinu Tam, when did Shpein Hashmasho start? 6.58 and a half, 45 minutes after Tzais. It's a pretty big difference, right? 45 minutes after Tzais, according to the Gra, it was definitely day, according to Rabbeinu Tam. It was not even a suffix. That's a pretty big divergence. As we have a question about that? Or I was going to say, I think you clarified that. So for the, the Rabinu Tom view, that until 658 is still previous day. Yeah. So that's a, a pretty big divergence <coughs> between, between this mana. So that's how, yeah, did you? When did you say if it was 6 and 6 would be for Rabinu Tom? So it says according to him would be seven twelve, right? Seventy two minutes in, yeah. And we're assuming for the goat that says is thirteen and a half minutes after the beginning of Shkia, not the end of Shkia. That for the goatim, say it again. That says is thirteen and a half minutes after the beginning of Shkia. Right. Not the end of Shkia. I think I'm assuming, but that 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 not not counting for the end of Shkia or not. Yeah, yeah, I mean it starts with six 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 thirteen, not whatever, towards the end of Shkia, when the sun is already down. You start counting from the beginning of Shkia. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Could a fundamental difference between the Godim and Rabbeinu Tam's opinion be that, uh, I'm not, I don't think we saw anything like this on the Makor, but could a fundamental difference be that Rabbeinu Tam is trying, his twilight by evening is trying to parallel twilight by morning, which we do have a much longer standard of, t- which, is, which we do have a much longer standard of time for, also 72 minutes. Um, which I think is more universally accepted, um, whereas the whereas the Gonim are trying to say that this is just when the first identifiable <laughs> identifiable state is when the first identifiable signs of night, um, as we saw in the Rambam, three stars come out, and once you have those three identifiable signs, that's night. And even though we didn't see anything like this by morning, the first identifiable identifiable signs of morning, as in light from the horizon, that thus make it into day. Yes, it is possible that there is something like that going on. But let's talk about some of the other issues that are behind this. So, first of all, in terms of the history, and in our desire to not spend as much time as we could on this, or it's not the right way to phrase it, our desire to also allow some time for other things. I mean, with Halavai, we could spend as much time as this needs, but we do need to leave time for other things, but there are several entire volumes written on this subject. There are a lot of people who have a particular affinity for the subject and are inclined to write a lot about the subject, but there are, Baruch Hashem, so many beautiful volumes written about this topic. And there's a lot of history about this topic in terms of how one sheet or another has been accepted. And there's a lot of fascinating things to note. So, in terms of what has 
become the dominant opinion. So, for example, I mentioned a few <coughs> minutes ago that Rabbeinu Tam's view is not really just Rabbeinu Tam. It's mostly Rishonim and the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah. So when you think about that, it's not so surprising that there are those who hold Rabbeinu Tam's mind. You might say, why does never hold Rabbeinu Tam's mind? That's pretty serious pedigree. So what is it that the Gaonim have on their side? So the Gaonim have also some pretty heavy things on their side. And there are at least two things that are heavily pushing their position. One is, first of all, in terms of pedigree or in terms of advocates. So the Gaonim were the Gaonim, okay, but the Vilna Gaon was influential, but there was another very important ally that the Vilna Gaon had. It's still interesting historically here, just in terms of eras, so the Gaonim represent a certain era. We said that the Rishonim, the next level, and the Rishonim, were, a lot of them were on the position with Rabbeinu Tam. But if you go to the next era in history, you go to the early Achronim, so the Gra was influential, but one who agreed with the Gra, which one who very often disagreed with the Gra, but agreed with him on this, was the Balatanya. So the Balatanya, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, was one of the very influential people in the world of Hasidus. So if you have the constituency of the Gra and the constituency of the Balatanya, put those two together, that's to cover a lot of the Jewish world there. So that's a lot of populations there. you got the Democrats and the Republicans right away over there. But there are also two words that had a lot to do with the acceptance of the position of the Gra. Anyone know what those two words are? Two words in Hebrew, which were expressed in English yesterday. You did actually alluded to them yesterday, not using the Hebrew words that I'm looking for. <laughs> no, that would not be it. Hachush um, machish, uh, which in English could basically be rendered, look out the window. So hachush uh, machish means that the your senses contradict the view of a Tom. Because essentially what Rabbeinu Tam is telling you, what I just said a few minutes ago, is that for almost an hour after what we call Shkia, it is definitely day, according to Rabbeinu Tam. Right? That means it is pitch black outside. And he's telling you that that is day. So there's something that needs to be figured out about that. And that is, if you look outside, 58 minutes after Shkia, you tell me that's Benesh Mashos. So there is a chush issue. So that definitely has played a role in how this view has come to be accepted. So, for example, Rav Shechter Shlita has definitely invoked that as a major factor in the acceptance of the view of the Gaonim. And here, there's, so there's a definite shift. So you'll see in certain populations a 
view towards the Venetian camp. Historically, in America, for example, if you go back about a hundred years, there were those who followed Rebbeinatam, Lukula and Lachumra, meaning that there were those who, among the Hasidic community, who had their stores open on Friday till very late on Friday, following Rebbeinatam Lukula. And this is discussed in some of these books on Zmanim that I mentioned before. That that was the accepted minig, that the Rabbeinatam was accepted in both directions. Uh, there was historically at some point a shift, and there are, as you can understand, also many who be choshesh to Rabbeinatam for understandable reasons, based on what we've noted till now. Rav Shechter and Rav Willig are of the opinion that. The Grah is correct in an absolute sense, partially or largely because of this Choshmachish component. So they're not Choshesh to Rebbeinu Tam at all. Now, this has Nafkaminas in a lot of areas, but in Hilchel Shabbos very prominently. But it comes up, for example, So when there's a need to factor in Rebbeinu Tam Lakula, so how intellectually honest is it to do that? So let's say when somebody's stuck on the road on a Friday afternoon, so somebody who factors in Rebbeinu Tam L'chumra, does he have more latitude to also factor it in Lakula in the Shasat Chak? Or is that less so, or does it, matter, does it matter what you do in other situations? This a little bit overlaps with our discussion of Daf Beis and Aleph and the whole Tartar discussion. But Lamaisa, so for example, when the Shiloh comes up, you know, it's a, certainly not an uncommon question. So Rishachter has taken the position that the position of Rabbeinu Tam is completely not accepted the halacha, and it's not something that can be factored in even as a sniff. Others take a different view, because they assume that it is a position that could at least be considered as part of the equation. So whether one's personal incorporation of this position as a factor l'chumra should be part of the calculation whether they can incorporate l'kula. That's an open question, but that's an interesting thing to think about. So a big part of the assessment of why one might say that Rebbeinu Tam is completely off the table so, or why the Gaonim would win, so the Gaonim got a certain edge because of the advocacy both of the Gra and the Valatanya, and the Chush Machish has played a big role. Now, the truth is, there are Chush issues against the Gra's position also, because it's not perfect from a Chush position either. It's maybe not as glaring as the chush issues on the Rebbeinu Tam position, 
But is it the case that 13 and a half minutes after Shkia, it's fully dark? So, probably not. So, then the question is, where are we talking and when are we talking? So, this question was brought up yesterday. So, presumably, we're talking about a specific location and maybe a specific time. So, then the studies were conducted that maybe we have to be talking about Eretz Yisrael. And interestingly, Eretz Yisrael and Bavel actually share the same latitude. So they may have comparable calculations, Eretz Yisrael and Bavel. So what if you look at Eretz Yisrael and Bavel in June or in Nissan? So then you get still maybe 22 minutes. Get closer, but I think Rivchil Michal Tukachinsky noted that in the Sefer, it's still 22 minutes. But Leo Levy, who wrote about the Zmanim, he noted that a trained eye can see three stars in Eretz Yisrael in Nisan after 15 minutes. Hi. I mean, if you're in like a remote equator where there's like so little atmospheric uh, disturbance, you might be able to see it faster than a so that's certainly a part of it, right? So the question, what else is going to need very pure conditions in order to be able to see it? So all of that definitely factors in. But this was something that was assessed with a lot of different experimentation. So it could be that you could control for enough things that maybe could get things close enough under the right circumstances to get the Gras definition to fit with the Mitzias. Right. Right. Zakai's point, because when these halachos were made, they, again, there was no electricity, so there's no... Yeah, no, certainly... whatsoever, so yeah, you see no. stars so much earlier than you could see most places in the world now. Yeah, no, they're definitely assuming that you have no artificial light. The question is, even with that, so right. what kind of circumstances do you need? To, to get that, clearly we're assuming without streetlights, but how far I mean, can you? I mean, now if you say that there is pollution in the air and... Yeah, no, clearly that's what we're assuming. But so even with that, can you get 13 and a half minutes? It might still be a stretch, but 15 minutes maybe you can get. Hi. Um, two things. Number one, it's no longer experimentally possible on this planet to test that. That might be true. No, no, no. Even even the least polluted area ever, because there's um, satellites that do light pollution, um, and therefore you actually can't see anything. Okay. Um, number two is um, a sl- somewhat sl- uh, slightly off-topic question, which I probably shouldn't ask then. Uh, Think about it. <laughs> are we specifically talking about stars? It have to be a star. Can it be? Could be a a spaceship. <laughs> well, that, that's the follow-up. Could it be a space laser? If it's a spaceship, it won't. Well, I'm saying a, a planet, let's say. I guess that goes a little bit to the Simon Siba issue. But, um, uh, well, why are you asking? Um, because... Uh, never mind, never mind. Yes, okay, it sounds like it was going somewhere interesting. Yeah, but, um, uh, so, now to throw in a few other things here. So, 
in terms of being machmir for the 72 minutes. So then there is also the question, and this is also a point that Rebbe has raised, and Rebbe has an essay about this in the Al-Mordechai, that we mentioned at the outset that it is a good question whether anyone, whether Rabbeinu Tam, for example, if you want to be choshesh to Rabbeinu Tam, would Rabbeinu Tam acknowledge an 18-minute mill? It's possible he may hold from a 22-and-a-half-minute mill. Or a differently-sized mill. So, if you hold for, you want to wait 72 minutes, so bichoshesh Rabbeinu Tam, it may be that you're not satisfying anybody. Yeah. Why would, where, why would there be a difference? Why would he not hold an 18-minute mill? Because why? how exactly you calculate a mill is itself a separate discussion. So to say you want to follow his view and to do the mill that's not necessarily his mill, that's a question whether you're accomplishing anything. So Ramosha Feinstein has a truth about this where he acknowledges that 72 minutes doesn't necessarily have an inherent significance, but he writes that that may just be the minig in the yeshivas that has taken on its own significance. And he has his own truth about what exactly maybe 50 minutes could accomplish. And that may be adjusted in New York, that's really what Rabbeinu Tamsman is, based on actual atmospheric conditions. Yeah. Also, could it have to do a measure of, I guess we might, we've mentioned this briefly, but could this have to do a measure of location? For instance, Rabbeinu Tam, um, he lived in France, right? So maybe he was in France, it takes longer for the amount of time it takes for the sky to darken between sunset and um, and Zeta Kachavim is, is a lot longer than it takes in Eretz Yisrael. Except, but he's commenting, though, he's interpreting Gemara's, though. So, so he's just, interpreting based on Eretz Yisrael time. Yeah. So that's, um, uh, he's, he's talking about the four mil, you know, so that, that's coming from a Gemara, that's not coming from where he lived. So, just to mention a few other issues here, so we mentioned also at the outset the possibility of different purposes. So there are Baz and Achuva notes what seems to be a steerer in the Rambam, maybe, that the Rambam says, as we know, our practice, that when it comes to Shabbos, that for the purpose of Malacha, so as we said, we have to keep Shabbos of 25 hours or however many hours it is, because we have to stop doing Malacha right away at Shkia. Because that becomes a time of Suffolk, Yom Suffolk Laila. So, therefore, we have to treat that as possibly Shabbos, as Anissa Daraisa, and therefore we have to start abstaining from Malacha. But the Rambam also says in Hilchus Kiddush HaChodesh that Kiddush HaChodesh has to be during the daytime. But after Shkia, you can still treat that as daytime for the purposes of Kiddush HaChodesh. So the Radbaz says 
Is that a stira? So he notes that not necessarily, because this goes back to Ephraim Call, we said at the beginning of this whole discussion, that it is possible that we could look at our two different categories with two different answers. I need to, there are at least two different reasons why we need to know when night is. We need to know when we transition to a different day. And we need to know for the purposes of daytime mitzvahs and nighttime mitzvahs. So, for the purposes of Hilcha Shabbos, have we crossed into Shabbos from Friday? So maybe for that purpose, we have to be machmer that maybe, yes, we have crossed into Shabbos. But for the purpose of saying it's no longer daytime, and Kiddush HaChodesh can't take place any longer, maybe that has a different standard. And this is also related to an issue that Ramosh Sternbuch talks about in his Moed and Uzmanim. And this is something that many of you have been curious about. Now, what about if you're in Alaska or somewhere like that? Yes. So it's actually also to a somewhat extent relevant in Northern Europe also sometimes, but a place where it doesn't actually get dark fully. So what happens then for these halachas? So he draws a distinction there also. He says that for the purpose of transitioning from one day to the next, so maybe even if it doesn't actually get dark, but whenever the sun, that point of the earth is farthest from the sun, that's when it's now the next day. But for the purpose of nighttime mitzvot, if it's not actually night, so then maybe in Achanami, maybe it never does become nighttime mitzvot. But then, Hanugeya, all the more to our Masechta, says maybe when it comes to Kriyashma, so maybe that has a different thing. Even though it doesn't actually sound that way, from our opening Mishnah, but maybe that's the case. That maybe Kriyashma is connected to Zman Shriva rather than Lila. So maybe Kriyashma would be the exception. That maybe Kriyashma would still be applicable in these places because there would still be a Zman Shriva. But the other mitzvos that are contingent on night, so maybe they wouldn't actually apply that day because there wouldn't be a there wouldn't be a den of night that would take place in that context. Make sense. That's yes, right. Did you? Says that he made. This is basically three categories, right? In these places where it doesn't fully get dark, so we'll have to make three chilukim. That in terms of our original, <coughs> we originally set up two chilukim, right? That we need to know when it's night, so we know when we transition from one day to the next, and when nighttime mitzvahs apply, 
And we said probably those have the same standard, but who knows. So here Sternbach is saying, well, in a place where you don't actually have night, because it doesn't actually get dark, so then we maybe have to draw a distinction. We know that eventually does move from one day to the next. So that happens when, whenever you are farthest away from the sun. But it doesn't actually get night. So nighttime mitzvahs, maybe taka don't even apply there. But maybe an exception within that category is maybe Kriyashma doesn't have that same status because the discussion interesting to have within Kriyashma is that the Torah never actually spells out nighttime for Kriyashma. It just says, which we assume generally correlates to night, but maybe it doesn't. So maybe if there is no Kriyashma and that's what it means, then it's a problem. But if there is, that might be a different story. Caleb. I think Rav Schoenbach's question about other nighttime mitzvot also highlights the, uh, the immeasurable genius of Hashem in setting up the calendar and the Moadim. Okay. Um, you look at nighttime mitzvot, especially coming up um, at this time of year, like Megillah and Seder, that you have to be, even, even in very far extreme latitudes, unless you go to some of the most extreme places, there is still a nighttime for a majority of the world from like end of February through end of April. Um, it just, I guess, the further away from the equinox you get, it gets more, like, there's more parts of the world that don't have a set day or night. But many of these extreme locations still have, like, Northern Europe, Iceland, probably lots of parts of Alaska still have a set night time, even if it's very late during the time of year during which Parman Pesach would fall. I see there for that season specifically. Well, that, and that gets back to our leap year. Okay, Natal? At the places that don't necessarily have, that they don't get dark, or they don't have sunrise on the other side of the world, like, mm-hmm. would there be, would, would we consider it one long day for the two and a half months or whatever it is? For what purpose, though? For, like, let's say, davening. Do I go to bed and it's light outside, and I wake up and it's still light outside and nothing's changed? Do am I davening shachris again for any day? Yeah, I think that's what you're saying. Is that the day does change, but nighttime mitzvah specifically you won't have. Question is so. And on dav- the other side, would I not have daytime mitzvahs? Are there two and a half months in say Antarctica where I just would not be chayiv and tzitzis and tefillin and anything like that? I guess so. Would we be allowed to live in such a place? Probably, probably not. What about space? And, you know, that might be a topic of a workaround of some kind, which maybe or redifus amitzos. So, more to say about that, but unfortunately, our time is not infinite. As much as it's an infinite topic, time is an infinite topic, but it's not itself infinite for our purposes. So, we'll probably have to call it there. Um, uh, but a fascinating issue is on our agenda for tomorrow's Parshashir, so stay tuned for that, literally. And uh, look forward to that. Um, who wants to lead us in Mincha? Uh,